Part Two of The Sandman in Weird Tales, Volume One, by E. T. A. Hoffman, translated by J. T. Bilby. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Thomas Copeland. The Sandman, Part Two. Nathaniel and Clara sat in his mother's little garden. Clara was bright and cheerful since for three entire days her lover, who had been busy writing his poem, had not teased her with his dreams or forebodings. Nathaniel, too, spoke in a gay and vivacious way of things of merry import, as he formerly used to do, so that Clara said, Ah, now I have you again. We have driven away that ugly Coppelius, you see. Then it suddenly occurred to him that he had got the poem in his pocket, which he wished to read to her. He at once took out the manuscript and began to read. Clara, anticipating something tedious, as usual, prepared to submit to the infliction and calmly resumed her knitting. But as the sombre clouds rose up darker and darker, she let her knitting fall on her lap and sat with her eyes fixed in a set stare upon Nathaniel's face. He was quite carried away by his own work. The fire of enthusiasm colored his cheeks a deep red and tears started from his eyes. At length he concluded, groaning and showing great lassitude. Grasping Clara's hand, he sighed as if he were being utterly melted in inconsolable grief. Oh, Clara, Clara. She drew him softly to her heart, and said in a low but very grave and impressive tone, Nathaniel, my darling Nathaniel, throw that foolish, senseless, stupid thing into the fire. Then Nathaniel leapt indignantly to his feet, crying as he pushed Clara from him, You damned lifeless automaton, and rushed away. Clara was cut to the heart and wept bitterly. Oh, he has never loved me, or he does not understand me, she sobbed. Lothair entered the arbor. Clara was obliged to tell him all that had taken place. He was passionately fond of his sister, and every word of her complaint fell like a spark upon his heart so that the displeasure which he had long entertained against his dreamy friend Nathaniel was kindled into furious anger. He hastened to find Nathaniel and upbraided him in harsh words for his irrational behavior towards his beloved sister. The fire in Nathaniel answered him in the same style. A fantastic crack-brained fool was retaliated with a miserable, common, everyday sort of fellow. A meeting was the inevitable consequence. They agreed to meet on the following morning behind the garden wall and fight, according to the custom of the students of the place, with sharp rapiers. They went about silent and gloomy. Clara had both heard and seen the violent quarrel, and also observed the fencing-master bring the rapiers in the dusk of the evening. She had a presentiment of what was to happen. They both appeared at the appointed place, wrapped up in the same gloomy silence, and threw off their coats. Their eyes flaming with the bloodthirsty light of pugnacity, they were about to begin their contest when Clara burst through the garden door. Sobbing, she screamed, You savage, terrible men! Cut me down before you attack each other! For how can I live when my lover has slain my brother, or my brother slain my lover? Lothair let his weapon fall and gazed silently upon the ground, whilst Nathaniel's heart was rent with sorrow, and all the affection which he had felt for his lovely Clara in the happiest days of her golden youth, was awakened within him. His murderous weapon, too, fell from his hand. Oh, can you ever forgive me, my only, my dearly loved Clara, 
Can you, my dear brother Lothair, also forgive me? Lothair was touched by his friend's great distress. The three young people embraced each other amidst endless tears and swore never again to break their bond of love and fidelity. Nathaniel felt as if a heavy burden that had been weighing him down to the earth was now rolled from off him. Nay, as if by offering resistance to the dark power which had possessed him, he had rescued his own self from the ruin which had threatened him. Three happy days he now spent amidst the loved ones, and then returned to G Blank, where he had still a year to stay before settling down in his native town for life. Everything having reference to Coppelius had been concealed from the mother, for they knew she could not think of him without horror, since she, as well as Nathaniel, believed him to be guilty of causing her husband's death. When Nathaniel came to the house where he lived, he was greatly astonished to find it burnt down to the ground, so that nothing but the bare outer walls were left standing amidst a heap of ruins. Although the fire had broken out in the laboratory of the chemist who lived on the ground floor, and had therefore spread upwards, some of Nathaniel's bold active friends had succeeded in time in forcing a way into his room in the upper story and saving his books and manuscripts and instruments. They had carried them all uninjured into another house, where they engaged a room for him. This he now at once took possession of. That he lived opposite Professor Spallanzani did not strike him particularly, nor did it occur to him as anything more singular that he could, as he observed by looking out of his window, see straight into the room where Olympia often sat alone. Her figure he could plainly distinguish, although her features were uncertain and confused. It did at length occur to him, however, that she remained for hours together in the same position in which he had first discovered her through the glass door, sitting at a little table without any occupation whatever, and it was evident that she was constantly gazing across in his direction. He could not but confess to himself that he had never seen a finer figure. However, with Clara, mistress of his heart, he remained perfectly unaffected by Olympia's stiffness and apathy and it was only occasionally that he sent a fugitive glance over his compendium across to her. That was all. He was writing to Clara. A light tap came at the door. At his summons to come in, Coppola's repulsive face appeared peeping in. Nathaniel felt his heart beat with trepidation, but recollecting what Spallanzani had told him about his fellow countryman Coppola, and what he had himself so faithfully promised his beloved in respect to the Sandman Coppelius, he was ashamed of himself for this childish fear of spectres. Accordingly, he controlled himself with an effort, and said as quietly and as calmly as he possibly could, I don't want to buy any weather glasses, my good friend. You had better go elsewhere. Then Coppola came right into the room, and said in a hoarse voice, screwing up his wide mouth into a hideous smile, whilst his little eyes flashed keenly from beneath his long grey eyelashes. What? Ne weather glass? Ne weather glass? We've got fine eyes as well, fine eyes. Affrighted, Nathaniel cried, You stupid man, how can you have eyes? Eyes, eyes! But Coppola, laying aside his weather glasses, thrust his hands into his big coat pockets and brought out several spy-glasses and spectacles, and put them on the table. There, there, spectacles, spectacles, to put nose, them's my eyes, fine eyes. 
and he continued to produce more and more spectacles from his pockets until the table began to gleam and flash all over. Thousands of eyes were looking and blinking convulsively and staring up at Nathaniel. He could not avert his gaze from the table. Coppola went on heaping up his spectacles, whilst wilder and even wilder burning flashes crossed through and through each other and darted their blood-red rays into Nathaniel's breast. Quite overcome and frantic with terror, he shouted, Stop! Stop! You terrible man! And he seized Coppola by the arm, which he had again thrust into his pocket in order to bring out still more spectacles, although the whole table was covered all over with them. With a harsh, disagreeable laugh, Coppola gently freed himself, and with the words, So, when done, well, here, fine glass. He swept all his spectacles together and put them back into his coat pockets, whilst from a breast pocket he produced a great number of larger and smaller perspectives. As soon as the spectacles were gone, Nathaniel recovered his equanimity again, and bending his thoughts upon Clara, he clearly discerned that the gruesome incubus had proceeded only from himself, as also the Coppola was a right honest mechanician and optician, and far from being Coppelius's dreaded double and ghost. And then, besides, none of the glasses which Coppola now placed on the table had anything at all singular about them, at least nothing so weird as the spectacles. So, in order to square accounts with himself, Nathaniel now really determined to buy something of the man. He took up a small, very beautifully cut pocket perspective, and by way of proving it, looked through the window. Never before in his life had he had a glass in his hands that brought out things so clearly and sharply and distinctly. Involuntarily, he directed the glass upon Spallanzani's room. Olympia sat at the little table as usual, her arms laid upon it and her hands folded. Now he saw for the first time the regular and exquisite beauty of her features. The eyes, however, seemed to him to have a singular look of fixity and lifelessness. But as he continued to look closer and more carefully through the glass, he fancied a light like humid moonbeams came into them. It seemed as if their power of vision was now being enkindled. Their glances shone with ever-increasing vivacity. Nathaniel remained standing at the window as if glued to the spot by a wizard's spell. His gaze riveted unchangeably upon the divinely beautiful Olympia. A coughing and shuffling of the feet awakened him out of his enchaining dream, as it were. Coppola stood behind him. Tre Giacchini, three ducats. Nathaniel had completely forgotten the optician. He hastily paid the sum demanded. Ain't fine glass, fine glass, asked Coppola in his harsh, unpleasant voice, smiling sardonically. Yes, 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 rejoined Nathaniel impatiently. Adieu, my good friend. But Coppola did not leave the room without casting many peculiar side-glances upon Nathaniel, and the young student heard him laughing loudly on the stairs. Ah, well, thought he, he's laughing at me because I've paid him too much for this little perspective, because I've given him too much money, that's it. As he softly murmured these words, he fancied he detected a gasping sigh, as of a dying man stealing awfully through the room. His heart stopped beating with fear. But, to be sure... He had heaved a deep sigh himself. It was quite plain. Clara is quite right, said he to himself, in holding me to be an incurable ghost-seer. And yet, it's very ridiculous. 
I more than ridiculous that the stupid thought of having paid Coppola too much for his glass should cause me this strange anxiety. I can't see any reason for it. Now he sat down to finish his letter to Clara. But a glance through the window showed him Olympia still in her former posture. Urged by an irresistible impulse, he jumped up and seized Coppola's perspective nor could he tear himself away from the fascinating Olympia until his friend and brother Sigmund called for him to go to Professor Spallanzani's lecture. The curtains before the door of the all-important room were closely drawn, so that he could not see Olympia, nor could he even see her from his own room during the two following days, notwithstanding that he scarcely ever left his window and maintained a scarce interrupted watch through Coppola's perspective upon a room. On the third day, curtains even were drawn across the window. Plunged into the depths of despair, goaded by longing and ardent desire, he hurried outside the walls of the town. Olympia's image hovered about his path in the air and stepped forth out of the bushes and peeped up at him with large and lustrous eyes from the bright surface of the brook. Clara's image was completely faded from his mind. He had no thoughts except for Olympia. He uttered his love-plaints aloud and in a lachrymose tone, Oh, my glorious, noble star of love, have you only risen to vanish again and leave me in the darkness and hopelessness of night? Returning home, he became aware that there was a good deal of noisy bustle going on in Spallanzani's house. All the doors stood wide open. Men were taking in all kinds of gear and furniture. The windows of the first floor were all lifted off their hinges. Busy maidservants with immense hair brooms were driving backwards and forwards, dusting and sweeping, whilst within could be heard the knocking and hammering of carpenters and upholsterers. Utterly astonished, Nathaniel stood still in the street. Then Sigmund joined him, laughing, and said, Well, what do you say to our old Spallanzani? Nathaniel assured him that he could not say anything, since he knew not what it all meant. To his great astonishment, he could hear, however, that they were turning the quiet, gloomy house almost inside out with their dusting and cleaning and making of alterations. Then he learned from Sigmund that Spallanzani intended giving a great concert and ball on the following day, and that half the university was invited. It was generally reported that Spallanzani was going to let his daughter Olympia whom he had so long so jealously guarded from every eye, make her first appearance. Nathaniel received an invitation. At the appointed hour, when the carriages were rolling up and the lights were gleaming brightly in the decorated halls, he went across to the professors, his heart beating high with expectation. The company was both numerous and brilliant. Olympia was richly and tastefully dressed. One could not but admire her figure, and the regular beauty of her features. The striking inward curve of her back, as well as the wasp-like smallness of her waist, appeared to be the result of too tight lacing. There was something stiff and measured in her gait and bearing that made an unfavorable impression upon many. It was ascribed to the constraint imposed upon her by the company. The concert began. Olympia played on the piano with great skill and sang as skillfully an aria di bravura in a voice which was, if anything, almost too sharp, but clear as glass bells. Nathaniel was transported with delight. He stood in the background, farthest from her, 
and owing to the blinding lights could not quite distinguish her features. So, without being observed, he took Coppola's glass out of his pocket and directed it upon the beautiful Olympia. Oh, then he perceived how her yearning eyes sought him, how every note only reached its full purity in the loving glance which penetrated to and inflamed his heart. Her artificial roulades seemed to him to be the exultant cry towards heaven of the soul refined by love. And when at last, after the cadenza, the long trill rang shrilly and loudly through the hall, he felt as if he were suddenly grasped by burning arms and could no longer control himself. He could not help shouting aloud in his mingled pain and delight, Olympia! All eyes were turned upon him. Many people laughed. The face of the cathedral organist wore a still more gloomy look than it had done before, but all he said was, Very well. The concert came to an end, and the ball began. Oh, to dance with her, with her. That was now the aim of all Nathaniel's wishes, of all his desires. But how should he have courage to request her, the queen of the ball, to grant him the honor of a dance? And yet, he couldn't tell how it came about. Just as the dance began, he found himself standing close beside her, nobody having as yet asked her to be his partner. So, with some difficulty stammering out a few words, he grasped her hand. It was cold as ice. He shook with an awful frosty shiver. But, fixing his eyes upon her face, he saw that her glance was beaming upon him with love and longing, and at the same moment he thought that the pulse began to beat in her cold hand, and the warm life-blood to course through her veins. And passion burned more intensely in his own heart also, he threw his arm round her beautiful waist and whirled her round the hall. He had always thought that he kept good and accurate time in dancing, but from the perfectly rhythmical evenness with which Olympia danced, and which frequently put him quite out, he perceived how very faulty his own time really was. Notwithstanding, he would not dance with any other lady, and everybody else who approached Olympia to call upon her for a dance he would have liked to kill on the spot. This, however, only happened twice. To his astonishment, Olympia remained after this without a partner, and he failed not on each occasion to take her out again. If Nathaniel had been able to see anything else except the beautiful Olympia, there would inevitably have been a good deal of unpleasant quarrelling and strife, for it was evident that Olympia was the object of the smothered laughter, only with difficulty suppressed, which was heard in various corners amongst the young people and they followed her with very curious looks, but nobody knew for what reason. Nathaniel, excited by dancing and the plentiful supply of wine he had consumed, had laid aside the shyness which at other times characterized him. He sat beside Olympia, her hand in his own, and declared his love enthusiastically and passionately in words which neither of them understood, neither he nor Olympia, and yet she perhaps did, for she sat with her eyes fixed unchangeably upon his, sighing repeatedly, Ah! 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 Upon this Nathaniel would answer, Oh, you glorious heavenly lady, you ray from the promised paradise of love! Oh, what a profound soul you have! My whole being is mirrored in it! And a good deal more in the same strain. But Olympia only continued to sigh, 
Ah, ah, again and again. Professor Spallanzani passed by the two happy lovers once or twice and smiled with a look of peculiar satisfaction. All at once it seemed to Nathaniel, albeit he was far away in a different world, as if it were growing perceptibly darker down below at Professor Spallanzani's. He looked about him, and to his very great alarm became aware that there were only two lights left burning in the hall, and they were on the point of going out. The music and dancing had long ago ceased. We must part, part, he cried, wildly and despairingly. He kissed Olympia's hand. He bent down to her mouth, but ice-cold lips met his burning ones. As he touched her cold hand, he felt his heart thrilled with awe. The legend of the dead bride shot suddenly through his mind. Note. Phlegon, the freedman of Hadrian, relates that a young maiden, Philemian, the daughter of Philostratus and Caritas, became deeply enamoured of a young man named Macantes, a guest in the house of her father. This did not meet with the approbation of her parents, and they turned Macantes away. The young maiden took this so much to heart that she pined away and died. Some time afterwards, Macantes returned to his old lodgings, when he was visited at night by his beloved, who came from the grave to see him again. The story may be read in Haywood's, Thomas, Hierarchy of Blessed Angels, Book 7, page 479, London, 1637. Goethe has made this story the foundation of his beautiful poem, Die Braut von Corinth, with which form of it Hoffman was most likely familiar. Return to text. But Olympia had drawn him closer to her, and the kiss appeared to warm her lips to vitality. Professor Spallanzani strode slowly through the empty apartment, his footsteps giving a hollow echo and his figure had, as the flickering shadows played about him, a ghostly, awful appearance. Do you love me? Do you love me, Olympia? Only one little word. Do you love me? whispered Nathaniel. But she only sighed. Ah, ah, as she rose to her feet. Yes, you are my lovely, glorious star of love, said Nathaniel, and will shine for ever purifying and ennobling my heart. Ah, ah, replied Olympia as she moved along. Nathaniel followed her. They stood before the professor. You have had an extraordinarily animated conversation with my daughter, said he, smiling. Well, well, my dear Mr. Nathaniel, if you find pleasure in talking to the stupid girl, I am sure I shall be glad for you to come and do so. Nathaniel took his leave his heart singing and leaping in a perfect delirium of happiness. During the next few days, Spallanzani's ball was the general topic of conversation. Although the professor had done everything to make the thing a splendid success, yet certain gay spirits related more than one thing that had occurred which was quite irregular and out of order. They were especially keen in pulling Olympia to pieces for her taciturnity and rigid stiffness. In spite of her beautiful form, they alleged that she was hopelessly stupid, and in this fact they discerned the reason why Spallanzani had so long kept her concealed from publicity. Nathaniel heard all this with inward wrath, but nevertheless he held his tongue, for, thought he, would it indeed be worthwhile to prove to these fellows that it is their own stupidity which prevents them from appreciating Olympia's profound and brilliant parts? One day Sigmund said to him, 
pray brother have the kindness to tell me how you a sensible fellow came to lose your head over that miss wax face that wooden doll across there nathaniel was about to fly into a rage but he recollected himself and replied tell me sigmund how came it that olympia's divine charms could escape your eye so keenly alive as it always is to beauty and your acute perception as well but heaven be thanked for it otherwise i should have had you for a rival and then the blood of one of us would have had to be spilled sigmund perceiving how matters stood with his friend skilfully interposed and said after remarking that all argument with one in love about the object of his affections was out of place yet it's very strange that several of us have formed pretty much the same opinion about olympia we think she is you won't take it ill brother that she is singularly statuesque and soulless her figure is regular and so are her features that can't be gainsaid and if her eyes were not so utterly devoid of life i may say of the power of vision she might pass for a beauty she is strangely measured in her movements they all seem as if they were dependent upon some wound-up clockwork her playing and singing has the disagreeably perfect but insensitive time of a singing machine and her dancing is the same we felt quite afraid of this olympia and did not like to have anything to do with her she seemed to us to be only acting like a living creature and as if there was some secret at the bottom of it all nathaniel did not give way to the bitter feelings which threatened to master him at these words of sigmund's he fought down and got the better of his displeasure and merely said very earnestly you cold prosaic fellows may very well be afraid of her it is only to its like that the poetically organized spirit unfolds itself upon me alone did her loving glances fall and through my mind and thoughts alone did they radiate and only in her love can i find my own self again perhaps however she doesn't do quite right not to jabber a lot of nonsense and stupid talk like other shallow people it is true she speaks with few words but the few words she does speak are genuine hieroglyphs of the inner world of love and of the higher cognition of the intellectual life revealed in the intuition of the eternal beyond the grave but you have no understanding for all these things and i am only wasting words god be with you brother said sigmund very gently almost sadly but it seems to me that you are in a very bad way you may rely upon me if all no i can't say any more it all at once dawned upon nathaniel that his cold prosaic friend sigmund really and sincerely wished him well and so he warmly shook his proffered hand nathaniel had completely forgotten that there was a clara in the world whom he had once loved and his mother and lothair they had all vanished from his mind he lived for olympia alone he sat beside her every day for hours together, rhapsodizing about his love and sympathy and kindled into life, and about psychic elective affinity. Note. This phrase, Die Walterwandschaft, in German, has been made celebrated as the title of one of Goethe's works. Return to text. All of which Olympia listened to with great reverence. He fished up from the very bottom of his desk all the things that he had ever written, poems 
fancy sketches, visions, romances, tales, and the heap was increased daily with all kinds of aimless sonnets, stanzas, canzonets. All these he read to Olympia hour after hour without growing tired. But then he had never had such an exemplary listener. She neither embroidered nor knitted. She did not look out of the window or feed a bird or play with a little pet dog or a favorite cat. Neither did she twist a piece of paper or anything of that kind round her finger. She did not forcibly convert a yawn into a low affected cough. In short, she sat hour after hour with her eyes bent unchangeably upon her lover's face, without moving or altering her position, and her gaze grew more ardent and more ardent still. And it was only when at last Nathaniel rose and kissed her lips or her hand that she said, Ah, oh, ah, oh, and then, Good night, dear. Arrived in his own room, Nathaniel would break out with, Oh, what a brilliant, what a profound mind. Only you, you alone understand me. And his heart trembled with rapture when he reflected upon the wondrous harmony which daily revealed itself between his own and his Olympia's character. For he fancied that she had expressed in respect to his works and his poetic genius the identical sentiments which he himself cherished deep down in his own heart in respect to the same, and even as if it was his own heart's voice speaking to him. And it must indeed have been so for Olympia never uttered any other words than those already mentioned. And when Nathaniel himself, in his clear and sober moments, as, for instance, directly after waking in a morning, thought about her utter passivity and taciturnity, he only said, What are words but words? The glance of her heavenly eyes says more than any tongue on earth. And how can any way a child of heaven accustom herself to the narrow circle which the exigencies of a wretched mundane life demand. Professor Spallanzani appeared to be greatly pleased at the intimacy that had sprung up between his daughter Olivia and Nathaniel, and showed the young man many unmistakable proofs of his good feeling towards him. And when Nathaniel ventured at length to hint very delicately at an alliance with Olympia, the professor smiled all over his face at once, and said he should allow his daughter to make a perfectly free choice. Encouraged by these words, and with the fire of desire burning in his heart, Nathaniel resolved the very next day to implore Olympia to tell him frankly in plain words what he had long read in her sweet loving glances, that she would be his forever. He looked for the ring which his mother had given him at parting. He would present it to Olympia as a symbol of his devotion and of the happy life he was to lead with her from that time onward. Whilst looking for it, he came across his letters from Clara and Lothair. He threw them carelessly aside, found the ring, put it in his pocket, and ran across to Olympia. Whilst still on the stairs, in the entrance passage, he heard an extraordinary hubbub. The noise seemed to proceed from Spallanzani's study. There was a stamping, a rattling, pushing, knocking against the door, with curses and oaths intermingled. Leave hold, leave hold! You monster! You rascal! Staked your life and honor upon it. Ha, 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 ha! That was not our wager. I, I made the eyes. I, the clockwork! Go to the devil with your clockwork, you damned dog of a watchmaker. Be off, Satan! Stop, you paltry turner, you infernal beast! Stop! Begone! Let me go! 
the voices which were thus making all this racket and rumpus were those of Spallanzani and the fearsome Coppelius. Nathaniel rushed in, impelled by some nameless dread. The professor was grasping a female figure by the shoulders. The Italian Coppola held her by the feet, and they were pulling and dragging each other backwards and forwards, fighting furiously to get possession of her. Nathaniel recoiled with horror on recognizing that the figure was Olympia. Boiling with rage, he was about to tear his beloved from the grasp of the madmen when Coppola, by an extraordinary exertion of strength, twisted the figure out of the professor's hands and gave him such a terrible blow with her that he reeled backwards and fell over the table all amongst the vials and retorts, the bottles and glass cylinders which covered it. All these things were smashed into a thousand pieces, but Coppola threw the figure across his shoulder and, laughing shrilly and horribly, ran hastily down the stairs, the figure's ugly feet hanging down and banging and rattling like wood against the steps. Nathaniel was stupefied. He had seen only too distinctly that in Olympia's pallid waxed face there were no eyes, merely black holes in their stead. She was an inanimate puppet. Spallanzani was rolling on the floor. The pieces of glass had cut his head and breast and arm. The blood was escaping from him in streams, but he gathered his strength together by an effort. After him! After him! What do you stand staring there for? Coppelius! Coppelius! He's stolen my best automaton, at which I've worked for twenty years, staked my life upon it. The clockwork, speech, movement, mine! Your eyes? Stolen your eyes? Damn him! Curse him! After him! Fetch me back, Olympia! There are the eyes! And now Nathaniel saw a pair of bloody eyes lying on the floor, staring at him. Spallanzani seized them with his uninjured hand and threw them at him so that they hit his breast. Then madness dung her burning talons into him and swept down into his heart, rending his mind and thoughts to shreds. Aha! 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 Firewheel! Firewheel! Spin round! Firewheel! Merrily! Merrily! Aha! Wooden doll! Spin round! Pretty wooden doll! And he threw himself upon the professor, clutching him fast by the throat. He would certainly have strangled him had not several people, attracted by the noise, rushed in and torn away the madman. And so they saved the professor, whose wounds were immediately dressed. Sigmund, with all his strength, was not able to subdue the frantic lunatic, who continued to scream in a dreadful way, Spin round, wooden doll! and to strike out right and left with his doubled fists. At length, the united strength of several succeeded in overpowering him by throwing him on the floor and binding him. His cries passed into a brutish bellow that was awful to hear, and thus raging with the harrowing violence of madness, he was taken away to the madhouse. Before continuing my narration of what happened further to the unfortunate Nathaniel, I will tell you, indulgent reader, in case you take any interest in that skillful mechanician and fabricator of automata Spallanzani, that he recovered completely from his wounds. He had, however, to leave the university, for Nathaniel's fate had created a great sensation, and the opinion was pretty generally expressed that it was an imposture altogether unpardonable to have smuggled a wooden puppet instead of a living person into intelligent tea-circles, for Olympia had been present at several with success. Lawyers called it a cunning piece of knavery, 
and all the harder to punish since it was directed against the public and it had been so craftily contrived that it had escaped unobserved by all except a few preternaturally acute students although everybody was very wise now and remembered to have thought of several facts which occurred to them as suspicious but these latter could not succeed in making out any sort of a consistent tale for was it for instance a thing likely to occur to anyone as suspicious that according to the declaration of an elegant beau of these two parties olympia had contrary to all good manners sneezed oftener than she had yawned the former must have been in the opinion of this elegant gentleman the winding up of the concealed clockwork it had always been accompanied by an observable creaking and so on the professor of poetry and eloquence took a pinch of snuff and slapping the lid to and clearing his throat said solemnly my most honourable ladies and gentlemen don't you see then where the rub is the whole thing is an allegory a continuous metaphor you understand me sapientisat but several most honourable gentlemen did not rest satisfied with this explanation the history of this automaton had sunk deeply into their souls and an absurd mistrust of human figures began to prevail several lovers in order to be fully convinced that they were not paying court to a wooden puppet required that their mistress should sing and dance a little out of time should embroider or knit or play with her little pug etc when being read to but above all things else that she should do something more than merely listen that she should frequently speak in such a way as to really show that her words presupposed as a condition some thinking and feeling the bonds of love were in many cases drawn closer in consequence and so of course became more engaging in other instances they gradually relaxed and fell away i cannot really be made responsible for it was the remark of more than one young gallant at the tea-gatherings everybody in order to ward off suspicion yawned to an incredible extent and never sneezed spallanzani was obliged as has been said to leave the place in order to escape a criminal charge of having fraudulently imposed an automaton upon human society coppola too had also disappeared when nathaniel awoke he felt as if he had been oppressed by a terrible nightmare he opened his eyes and experienced an indescribable sensation of mental comfort whilst a soft and most beautiful sensation of warmth pervaded his body he lay on his own bed in his own room at home clara was bending over him and at a little distance stood his mother and lothair at last at last oh my darling nathaniel now we have you again now you are cured of your grievous illness now you are mine again and clara's words came from the depths of her heart and she clasped him in her arms the bright scalding tears streamed from his eyes he was so overcome with mingled feelings of sorrow and delight and he gasped forth my clara my clara sigmund who had staunchly stood by his friend in his hour of need now came into the room nathaniel gave him his hand my faithful brother you have not deserted me every trace of insanity had left him and in the tender hands of his mother and his beloved and his friends he quickly recovered his strength again good fortune had in the meantime visited the house a niggardly old uncle from whom they had never expected to get anything had died 
and left Nathaniel's mother not only a considerable fortune, but also a small estate, pleasantly situated not far from the town. There they resolved to go and live, Nathaniel and his mother, and Clara, to whom he was now to be married, and Lothair. Nathaniel was become gentler and more childlike than he had ever been before, and now began really to understand Clara's supremely pure and noble character. None of them ever reminded him, even in the remotest degree, of the past. But when Sigmund took leave of him, he said, By heaven, brother, I was in a bad way, but an angel came just at the right moment and led me back upon the path of light. Yes, it was Clara. Sigmund would not let him speak further, fearing lest the painful recollections of the past might arise too vividly and too intensely in his mind. The time came for the four happy people to move to their little property. At noon they were going through the streets. After making several purchases, they found that the lofty tower of the townhouse was throwing its giant shadows across the marketplace. Come, said Clara. Let us go up to the top once more and have a look at the distant hills. No sooner said than done. Both of them, Nathaniel and Clara, went up the tower. Their mother, however, went on with the servant girl to her new home, and Lothair, not feeling inclined to climb up all the many steps, waited below. There the two lovers stood arm in arm on the topmost gallery of the tower and gazed out into the sweet-scented wooded landscape beyond which the blue hills rose up like a giant's city. Oh, do look at that strange little grey bush. It looks as if it were actually walking towards us, said Clara. Mechanically, he put his hand into his side pocket. He found Coppola's perspective and looked for the bush. Clara stood in front of the glass. Then a convulsive thrill shot through his pulse and veins. Pale as a corpse, he fixed his staring eyes upon her. But soon they began to roll, and a fiery current flashed and sparkled in them, and he yelled fearfully like a hunted animal. Leaping up high in the air and laughing horribly at the same time, he began to shout with a piercing voice, Spin round, wooden doll! Spin round, wooden doll! With the strength of a giant he laid hold upon Clara and tried to hurl her over, but in an agony of despair she clutched fast hold of the railing that went round the gallery. Lothair heard the madman raging and Clara's scream of terror. A fearful presentiment flashed across his mind. He ran up the steps. The door of the second flight was locked. Clara's scream for help rang out more loudly. Mad with rage and fear, he threw himself against the door, which at length gave way. Clara's cries were growing fainter and fainter. Help! Save me! Save me! And her voice died away in the air. She is killed, murdered by that madman, shouted Lothair. The door to the gallery was also locked. Despair gave him the strength of a giant. He burst the door off its hinges. Good God! There was Clara in the grasp of the madman Nathaniel, hanging over the gallery in the air. She only held to the iron bar with one hand. Quick as lightning, Lothair seized his sister and pulled her back at the same time dealing the madman a blow in the face with his doubled fist, which sent him reeling backwards, forcing him to let go his victim. Lothair ran down with his insensible sister in his arms. She was saved. But Nathaniel ran round and 
round the gallery, leaping up in the air and shouting, Spin round, fire wheel, spin round, fire wheel. The people heard the wild shouting, and a crowd began to gather. In the midst of them towered the advocate Coppelius like a giant. He had only just arrived in the town, and had gone straight to the marketplace. Some were going up to overpower and take charge of the madman, but Coppelius laughed and said, Ha ha, wait a bit. He'll come down of his own accord. And he stood gazing upwards along with the rest. All at once Nathaniel stopped as if spellbound. He bent down over the railing and perceived Coppelius with a piercing scream. Ha! Fine eyes! Fine eyes! He leapt over. When Nathaniel lay on the stone pavement with a broken head, Coppelius had disappeared in the crush and confusion. Several years afterwards, it was reported that outside the door of a pretty country house in a remote district, Clara had been sitting hand in hand with a pleasant gentleman, whilst two bright boys were playing at her feet. From this, it may be concluded that she eventually found that quiet domestic happiness which her cheerful, blithesome character required, and which Nathaniel, with his tempest-tossed soul, could never have been able to give her. End of the Sandman Recording by Thomas Copeland